Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Father John, my friend Joe. This is Catholic Stuff You Should Know. You always look more interested than Goebel ever is, though. He's just kind of like sitting there like a slug. I, I, I'm never here when you guys record, but I'm always curious to know what his expression is, because you make him sound like he's like Jabba the Hutt in the corner, like, <laughs> dozing off or something. <laughs> Suncho. Um, Suncho. Okay, so the topic today is going to be really um, a lot thrown at people. And so I'm hoping that, uh, can you actually time this? Because this is like one of my favorite topics ever. I said that a lot. And you could talk forever? And I could talk forever, and I don't want to talk forever. Well, you just hit 50 seconds, so you better get moving. It's time to get rolling. Okay, so um, basically the topic today is diocesan priest versus religious priest, question mark. Yes. Because I hate that distinction. I know. Even though I'm a diocesan priest. When most guys discern the priesthood, that's basically what's presented in front of them. And what you're told is you can be a diocesan priest or you can be a religious priest. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to be like, stay in Denver. Hardcore. If you want to stay in Denver and like ski, then be a diocesan priest. But if you want to be like really hardcore and like serve the poor and be a saint, then go be a religious priest. That's right. That's basically, you know. Yeah. And let's be honest, like. Guys get cherry-picked all the time out of diocesan seminaries because it's like, oh, come on. They want a little more. We'll take you to the next level. That's right. Join us. We're a priesthood 2.0. That's basically what it looks like. Mm-hmm. But that's a problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem. So but they, I totally feel, I mean, anybody who's discerning the priesthood or is in seminary or is a priest knows exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, You just kind of live with this. Whenever I encounter diocesan priests, there's always kind of a sense of like, and even my impression before I entered seminary, there was a sense of like, okay, just like you said, if you really want to be hardcore, you're going to go do this and kind of give everything. Exactly. Uh, but exactly. But I never felt called to that. I always felt called to the diocesan life. I don't I know why. I felt called but... to kind of half-ass it. You That's know? right. <laughs> I don't know why. The uh, um, Yeah, so it is a very interesting topic. What I'd like to do is just go through a kind of a, a blitzkrieg through history here on um, the different topics and the different ways that it morphed because the distinction of diocesan priest versus religious priest is only – you know, 200 years old, something like that. It's it's very recent. It, it's not that long. Yeah. But we got to go back to the first century. We got to go back to the calling of Christ, all right? And the language that I want to use to start to lay the foundation for this whole kind of jaunt through history, so to speak, oh, this is... This is going to be intense. This is going to be very intense. <laughs> I'm trying not to make it as intense. I gave a conference on this to the guys last night, and Joe's like, oh, no, please don't do what you did again. The, uh, the basic thing is there's three different states of life. And we've, I think we've done a podcast on this. Yeah, we have. Lay state, priestly state, religious state. Mm-hmm. So the two different states of consecration, priestly state, mm-hmm. where you're consecrated by being ordained. Right. And the religious state, where you're consecrated by taking vows, mm-hmm. subjectively consecrating your whole life by vowing poverty, chastity, and obedience. In the early church, in the first century, you had the existence of these guys called clerics, right? Right. Which comes from clericos. Right, which means has to do with casting lots. Casting lots. Yes. It actually means the lot or the inheritance because ah. of Deuteronomy twenty. <laughs> uh, one of those chapters in Deuteronomy awesome. where the Lord takes the Levites and He makes them, you know, their inheritance is the Lord. Right. So that's where the Lord cleric comes from. Right. These they're they're called in an undivided way hmm. to live with Him. So in the early church, you have virgins, clerics, and you have monks, monks. and they're living. Uh, 
the evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience. They're what it's called the apostolic way of life. Leave everything and follow me. The monkos. They're living them in different ways. The monks, the monos, or hermits, eremitics. Eremitic is desert. Desert. So they're the guys in the desert. So and the monos living... is one. They're the guys who are solitary. By so the monks. original religious monks were solitary. Right. They were not in a monastery. Right. And community. they lived the evangelical councils. Mm-hmm. Clerics lived the evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience in community. From the very first century, from the very inception, they lived a common life. So priests were living the councils in community, all of them. All of them. And then virgins also lived the evangelical councils, and they lived the common life. So, but we're not going to talk about virgins or hermits today. We're going to talk about clerics. Because in the 6th century in the West, what happens? You just got this conference last night. In the 6th century in the West, you have, oh shoot, this is Augustine of Canterbury. He was no, in the no, not cent- yet. That's too early. He was in the 6th century. He was. Okay, 5th century. Those are the minsters. 5th century. Uh, 5th century. Uh, this is too easy for you. Come on. St. Benedict. St. Benedict. Oh, yeah, they're like monasteries. Benedict started. takes monks and he puts them together. And he got the idea from... Basil. Basil. And in the East, Pacomius. And Pacomius. That, oh, let's pull monks and have them live together. And that begins monasticism as we understand it in the West. What happens is that some clerics are ordained for the monastery. Some clerics remain priests... You know, and the distinction becomes known as monastic clergy right. or pastoral clergy, guys who are in the, the pastoral life, caring for the flock, so to speak. Um, Regular priests and canonical priests. Okay, right? that's the other name, and this is where it starts to get crazy. Um, so the guys who were priests in the monastery were known as regular priests, okay, and they, because they lived according to the regula. The rule. The rule of St. Benedict. Regular priests took vows, Okay. Mm-hmm. So they were technically religious. Their their priesthood was at the service of their religious community. Right. Versus the pastoral clergy, which were also called canonical priests, who lived according to a way of life called canons. So they didn't live according to the rule of St. Benedict, but they did live according to a rule of life. The first thing to be known here is that the priests always lived according to a rule of life. Mm-hmm. Always. And what's going to happen over the next you know thousand years is that they live according to a rule. The most popular rule was written in the 720s by a guy named Crotingang. Crotingang. He sounds like something out of uh, Homestar Wanna. <laughs> Crotingang. <laughs> the uh, Saint Crotingang, who's the Bishop of Mainz, I think, in Germany. I don't know. Somewhere up there in Germany. And his rule was a rule of that, quote unquote, diocesan priests, right. canonical clergy lived according to. Okay? Yeah. Still with me? I'm with you, man. So... What we understand priests to be in the parish were, for the first thousand years, called canonical priests, right? right? Because they lived according to the canons. As opposed to to the regular. Regular priests priests who lived and served in the monasteries. Right. Now, the cool thing is that the way that, and this is what Joe mentioned, these things called minsters. So, St. Augustine of Canterbury in the 6th century is sent by St. Gregory the Great to England to evangelize the Angles, right? Yeah. And how does he do it? He makes foundations of monasteries and things minsters. called minsters, where we get the word Westminster. Or Munster. Or Munster when it makes its way to Germany, right? You did pay attention last night. I was... When I talk in a different voice, like the Seinfeld, hello, hello. Munster, then you pay attention all of a sudden. So he establishes these minsters. I love the minsters. This is an amazing concept. And if we get this, you're going to realize like, God, ah, we're living in such an unprecedented historical time. The way that they did it, is that they didn't just say, okay, we got five priests, let's spread them out all over England, right. and you each cover a parish. What they would do is they would go, and they would found a minster 
And the minster would be a collection in a community of priests, canonical priests. You know AKA how big they were? Diocesan How priests. many priests in a minster? Well, they had minor orders too. So you had everybody. Okay. So you had a whole kind of crew of guys. But usually, it depends. Anywhere between three to you ten. You have no idea. I, <laughs> <laughs> I totally made that up. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> That's cool. Continue. So they had these minsters. They'd set them up instead of spreading them out. So the minsters would go and you'd have a foundation, a minster, where these priests, and they would cover a two-hour walking radius. Right. So anywhere you could walk in two hours, that would be their pastoral area. Right. That's, awesome. That's interesting. And then they would all come back to their kind of central location. So they prayed the office together. They had meals together. They had a common dormitory even, kind of like we did last night. I crashed on Joe's floor. The uh, um, And they lived the common life, but then they would leave for the needs of the pastoral right. realm that they served, the minsters. And then the minsters, when St. Boniface, who was also a Benedictine monk, went uh, to Germany to evangelize Germany, he did it in the same way. Monasteries were founded, but mm-hmm. monasteries are enclosed. Minsters are communities, but they're meant to serve the the area. Right. And so the evangelization of Europe essentially took the twofold form of regular priests in monasteries and then canonical priests in minsters or minsters. And this started in England and got kind of transplanted to Germany. Yep. Interesting. And then with the uh, Carolingian Empire in the ninth century, it goes all over Europe. That's when it makes its way into France and okay, Italy cool. a whole bit. And so this is actually still common in Italy right now. Really? Cardinal Stafford told me the name. There's an Italian, I don't know what the Italians call it, but they, they're still living like this Monstro in some places. or something. Yeah. I don't know, something like that. We need Father Greg here to That's right. um, do it with his Italian accent. Um, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know what they call them, in, but they were all over. And they continue to be founded, and they existed for a thousand years. I mean, really from the sixth century until the 16th century, until the Reformation. These were the normative way that priests lived in common. I wonder if they started, uh, if they made cheese, Munster cheese. That is a good question. Because it's good. Is it? They did more than one thing right if they made that. Munster cheese is kind of weird, let's be honest. Uh, agree to disagree. Okay, moving on. The uh, um, minsters eventually became known as colleges, collegial churches. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is before the foundation of the university, which is in the 12th century, um, the colleges were uh, the were when they started to take on more formation. So the ministers started to develop, and they they started to have kind of in-house theologians, so to speak. Right. And they became so you'd known live as with, colleges. You'd live with priests. You'd do ministry with priests. You'd also be taking like you'd also be studying, studying mm-hmm. and praying. And exactly. Being formed. This was the proto seminary, so to speak. These little communities that were all individual and separate. The ministers now becoming colleges. These colleges were the foundation of the collegial system of the universities like Oxford and Cambridge, right? Yeah. So the new college, um, Trinity College, Trinity College, King's College, St. John's College, all of these were clerical foundations in the 12th, late Middle Ages. So they were high, so to speak. And uh, they became uh, very, very kind of uh, prominent and beautiful. And and then they became totally secularized and they're still beautiful. But uh, you can see them to this day in England. But it's so funny that the college model which is at the basis of the university system in Oxford and Cambridge, comes out of this. Yeah. You know? It's so crazy. So it's pretty crazy. And even in the University of Paris and different places they had this these models, these colleges. So but things were corrupt, right? Okay, so, so right now you yes. have the monasteries and then you have the minsters right. developing the colleges and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 
But let's go back to the 11th century. 11th century, things get corrupt. Things get corrupt. Things are, there's real problems. They start buying fancy cars and stuff. Yeah, there's problems. This guy named St. Peter Damien, who I kind of slammed last night. Yeah, Yeah. he's a saint. I didn't mention that. You didn't say he was a saint. He's also a doctor of the church. We should have interceded, uh, asked him for his intercession. I know. Well, St. Peter Damien was a ruthless, um, uh, in his desire for reform and improving the life of the clergy. You make him sound like a tyrant. He was. He needed to be. (laughs) And he worked with his buddy Hildebrand, a.k.a. Gregory, in the Gregorian reforms mm. of the 11th century. And what they tried to do, well, they did many, many good things. But one thing that did not work was they tried to impose vows upon canonical priests. Mm. So they said, "You, the reason you guys aren't living the evangelical councils is because you need to take vows. And uh, there was huge revolts and a whole different bit and then everything. And they said, if you want to live in community, you got to take vows. You don't want to live in community. That's fine. Go do your own thing. But if you're going to live in a common life in these minsters or colleges, you got to take vows. Right. Right. Well, that didn't work because vows make them religious. Right. Mm-hmm. But they're not. They're priests. They're of the priestly state. Right. And so it divides the canonical uh, priesthood divides and it becomes known as the canons regular, 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 they become religious. They take vows and canon secular. Right. Hmm. So canon secular is still our route towards this title, the diocesan priest. Men who are living the evangelical councils in community, but they don't take vows. Secular comes from the secula, the yes, age. the age. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so they're in the they're in the realm, but they're still living the evangelical councils. Right? Right. And, uh, so that's in the 11th century. The 16th century, you have a renewal of all these different things. They're called congregations that kind of start to pull them together. The oratory, St. Philip Neri, who we love. Uh, was big on this. These, These are the 16th century, right? 16th century. We're just cruising along. Cruising along, cruising along. And then it's only after Trent and only at, into the 18th, 19th century when the common life has completely dis- been destroyed by the Protestant Reformation and by um, the French Revolution that this notion of the diocesan priesthood, where priests do not live in community and priests do not take or do not live the evangelical councils that's the only time it ever came into existence right only in the last 200 years so you think the the main kind of split or the main you know point in history where this kind of started falling apart was with peter damien when he made all the canonical priests either take a vow or stop living in community the failed reforms of the 11th century of the priests of the of the priestly state were what gave direct rise to the mendicant orders to the clerical religious orders of the 11th and then 13th century. So like Franciscans, Dominicans, all those guys. Right, and even the Augustinian canons, you mm-hmm. know, of the 11th century, and Norbertines, these kind of guys. Uh, oh, those guys. So the first millennium, though, is a very clear distinction between canonical clergy and uh, regular that, clergy. Yeah. The keys are not to say, hey, religious priests are bad. The key is to say all priests until 200 years ago lived the common life mm-hmm. and they lived the evangelical councils. If they were religious, if the priesthood was at the service of their religious charism, they took him in the form of vows. If they didn't, if it was at the service of their priesthood, then they made promises or mm-hmm. some kind of other canonical form that wasn't a vow. Right. Right. So the, the fact that, you know, to have priests who are kind of on their own, living on their own, no real rule of life apart from like an obligation to pray the divine office is a total ano- uh, anomaly. It's an anomaly historically. Mm-hmm. And it's, and so... When but it's it com- so accepted. So it's, uh, it's like oh. the way things work now. And, and it's unbelievable. This is why I don't sleep at night because the companions are a group of diocesan priests, right? Canonical right. clergy who want to live in community 
and live the evangelical councils, we look like freaks. And everybody, right? everybody tells us we're trying to be a religious order. You're trying to be a religious order. Quit trying to be a religious order. And I'm like, why don't you study some history? Because this is ridiculous, and we have got to recover it. Here's the final point, and then I'll stop blabbing, because I imagine we're getting uh, late into time here. No, actually, it's only 15. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, man, great. great. <laughs> this is surprisingly going well. Uh, I'm doing this because Joe just didn't have time to prepare a topic today. Oh, sorry. I know. Okay. Man, he just throws me out of the bus all the time. So here's the here's another key thing. Uh, the common life, right, where priests live together in community, have meals together, pray together, um, that it has always existed historically for the sake of celibacy, hmm. right? It's always been at the service of celibacy, which is interesting that the fraternal life of the priests always exists for the service of the spousal life of the priest, which is his celibacy, because celibacy is spousal, right? Right. Right? Uh, we equate conjugal espousal, so it doesn't make sense, but I have, a, I have a spousal life because I'm in the person of Christ by the nature of my consecration, and my spouse is the church. Mm-hmm. Okay? Celibacy. And celibacy is not for the sake of availability or just to being able to be more you know, active or whatever, but it's exactly. for the sake of intimacy. It's the sake, the sake of, of intimacy and, because it's spousal, Fruitfulness. Oh, of fruitfulness, of course. Spiritual fruitfulness. Why am I celibate? For the sake of spiritual fruitfulness. Mm. So if the common life is at the service of celibacy and celibacy exists for f- spiritual fruitfulness, the common life exists for? Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness, which means if you remove the common life, you become you, sterile, less fruitful. You become less fruitful, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. When priests look at me and they say, oh, he's so, Father John is so ridiculous. He drives from Boulder down to Denver to go play with his friends at the companion's house. How cute. <laughs> And we have meals together. We pray together. These different things. Um, on the surface level, in the eyes of the world, it looks like I'm less available in Boulder. I could have taken more appointments. I could have done more sacraments. I could have done more things. Right. But if I look at the history of the church, I say I will be more fruitful if I live some kind of common life, some kind of fraternity with the brothers. That mm-hmm. that fraternal bond strengthens the spousal bond. That I'll be more fruitful even though I'm doing less, which doesn't make any sense to us as Americans. And I'll just share a beautiful grace. You were flying home on Sunday night, but we had a Lord's Day dinner on on Sunday night. So there's about 15 of us around the table. And a guy got word during the meal that Father Ralph Drendel had died. Father Ralph Drendel was, uh, is a saint. Um, I'm convinced of it if I've ever met one. Really? He's an old Jesuit, about five feet tall. He was shrinking as he got older. Huh. And uh, he's the famous one who always would say Yahweh is a tricky Yahweh. Yahweh is a tricky Yahweh. And he'd always, when you were confused about your life, that was like his, his great line. <laughs> but he was a very, very humble um, and, and, and just wonderful priest. And we were there at the table um, as we got word that he had died. And immediately we went to the chapel, prayed night prayer for him. And then we poured a, a whiskey, of course, a maker's. And we sat around and toasted to his life and told stories, uh, the older guys who knew him. And it was just like, this is a beautiful life, mm. right? The common life should exist for this reason. This priest gives his life in service. He dies very humbly and quietly at the end. He mm-hmm. doesn't have family around him. You know, he's 88. Um, but spiritually, he's united with this family of brothers who he radically affected and radically inspired. And now they're sitting around, you know, toasting his life. This is what we need for priests. That's beautiful. Isn't that amazing? It was a very, very powerful moment. That's really cool. I, I only have one memory of Father Drendel. Ever told you about this? Uh-uh. I went to vigil praise. The seminary does this like adoration praise night every once a month. Uh, and so before I was in seminary, I went to vigil praise once and what they have confessions offered. So I went to confession and end up getting put with this old priest and, you know, do my confession at the end of it. He just looks at me and he's like, 
what are you doing with your life? And I was like, actually, and at this point I was already applied for seminary. So I'm like, actually, I'm going to, I'm entering seminary. I'm going to be here next year. And he just goes, good. <laughs> and I was like, all right, cool. That was my only memory of him. Yeah, that was memory. it. Yeah. And then he was, he was at the seminary that year and the next year he was gone. So yep. I never he, had a chance to know him, but. He was my spiritual director for a while and uh, an exceptionally holy man. So. That's awesome. Now we have a saint in heaven praying for us and we need it. Father Ralph Trindle. Well, I think that's it for today. Good topic. Questions, comments, concerns, fears, anxieties, uh, Catholic Stuff Podcast at, at gmail.com. And I think that's about it. That's it. All right. Have All a right, good uh, have a good week. Okay, bye-bye.